My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. My sexual awakening has been equal parts exploring new experiences and healing old traumas. I have reclaimed my body as mine. Trish Kazi. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I am thrilled to have Trish joining me today to explore some of her personal journey and what she gained from finding pleasure with her hands versus a vibrator and more. Later in the show, we're going to have Dr. Megan joining in to explore some questions for a listener who is heading toward what she calls uncoupling from her husband. Trish Kazi is an artist activist, devoting her life to the arts, various activist issues, and being an agent for change and awakening. Trish is a professional singer and award-winning composer, currently working on her first album, Eichrenach. Can you help me, Trish? Eichrenach. Oh, so much better when you say it. Which will feature Irish songs done in Trish's unique style she calls, quote, I love this, global deep fried fish. She is an author and Broadway journalist interviewing Tony Award winners, Broadway stars, and the best coaches in the musical theater industry. She is also a proud feminist, sexual health advocate, rabid int activist, and human rights slash civil rights activist. She's also the creator of Awesome, which is awesome without the E at the an online training course based on ancient tantric principles and modern knowledge of anatomy and sexual function. As a survivor of sexual abuse and PTSD, Trish understands the importance of healing the self and the soul. Thank you so much for joining me, Trish. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for asking me to contribute to your book, which is fabulous. And anybody who doesn't have it needs to go ahead and get it because it's wonderful. Thank you so much for saying that. And it's so much richer thanks to your story. That quote at the beginning came from it. And I just it's one of the stories that I think really stands out and resonates and also brings up points that a lot of people don't talk about, which is one thing I love about you is you're very open, you're very (laughs) candid, and you really do speak out about so many different topics. And I know that you were raised Southern and Catholic, which you talk about in your story. Would you just share a bit about how did that influence your sexuality? Besides the unmitigated repression of everything that's natural and normal, Being raised in the South, there is this expectation of what women are supposed to be, what men are supposed to be. The gender roles are still very much defined. I think they're starting to loosen up, but um, even with so many single mothers and so many um, changes that have happened in our society and women becoming the breadwinners in the family, the South still wants to impose gender roles that just don't fit the modern family. Um, And of course, being Catholic and my mother, my mother was old school Catholic. She came to the Catholic faith very late in life. Actually, she was 40 years old. She had been raised Southern Baptist. So she was a religious zealot. 
And so going from Southern Baptist for 40 years to Roman Catholicism was absolutely um, horrific <laughs> for me uh, growing up just because I knew as a, as a very small child, very young child, I knew I was not Christian and I knew that I was more comfortable in nature. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with Jesus. It just didn't make sense to me. Um, all the talk about God and the son, there was no talk about God, the mother or a supreme goddess. There was no talk about the daughter of God. Um, and so I clearly had feminist leanings very early on. Um, I just didn't recognize them as such because there was no vocabulary for that because they, you know, being raised again, Southern and, uh, Catholic, those are not thoughts that you want to have such things as, um, you know, breaking the mold, trying to bust out of stereotypes, um, as well as just doing your own thing. Um, you know, for what it's worth, you know, I have friends of mine who follow a Kundalini yoga path and they get on me for the same thing that, you know, I need to, I need to dial it back. I need to not be so in touch with my sexual side. I should just give everything over to the, you know, the, the spirit and the faith and whatever. And I'm like, look, we're here on the physical plane for a reason. And I'm going to enjoy that reason as much as I can. Um, there was so much about being raised Catholic that hurt me emotionally and psychologically. Um, the biggest part was because I was molested as a child by a neighbor who was female. So sitting in church on Sundays and Catholic schools, Monday through Friday, and then various other um, Catholic training and Catholic dogmatic classes and events, my mother made sure we went to all of them. Um, there was never talk about um molestation or child rape. I don't like the word molestation. I think it's too nice of a word. Just call it what it is, child rape. Um, but there was plenty of talk about how evil premarital sex was, how evil homosexual sex was, and how evil extramarital sex was. But there was never any talk about pedophilia. And you know why Catholic priests um, would have to own up to um, some of the things that happen in the priesthood there. Um, so from the age of nine, when uh, the molestation child rape started by my female attacker, what I knew was that from the Catholic Church's perspective was that I was evil inherently. Mm -hmm. I was going to hell regardless of the fact that I was a straight A student and a Girl Scout. Um, you know, it, it just made no sense to me. I'm so and, sorry that happened to you. Well... You know, it, it's those, um, everybody's got to go through something, huh? <laughs> this is yeah. just one of the things that, that I've gone through. And so I was questioning things from a very early age and found my pagan side because I loved playing in the dirt, um, loved making mud pies and playing in the ditch and with the frogs and the, the crawdads and um, you know, I remember my mother, I was playing outside making mud pies one day and my mother said, Patricia, cause that's my ugh, name. Uh, she said, Patricia, we've got to get ready for church. We have to go, you know, worship God. And it's like, well, didn't God make the trees? Didn't God make the dirt? Didn't God make the frogs? How am I not already worshiping God? She couldn't answer that. Mm. And she said, oh, just get cleaned off and let's go. 
say, how does it make sense to go worship God in a building that's made by man? That's somehow better than worshiping God in nature that was created by God. So, yeah, I was never one for the rules and uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. so, yeah, that's it's surprising me um, as I think about it, you know, over the past few years of just how much it's affected me. Uh, but I love the South and I love good Southern food and good Southern music. And, you know, I do my own style of Irish music, which is global deep fried Irish music. Um, so there's a lot of good, too. But um, but, yeah, it's definitely been an overarching influence in my life. I love that you had these thoughts so early on and could see the, you know, the hypocrisy in the messaging that you were receiving and you were so in touch with your own spirituality. And I know that as a small child, it's one thing to be exposed to these kinds of messages. But when puberty sets in, which is already complex for so many reasons in our culture, it can be extremely heightened. And for you, because you developed large breasts early on. I know that was another factor. Tell us how that played into your journey. Well, it started actually a year or two before because I was the new kid in the Catholic school. And you have to understand, I am a fair skin, uh, slightly more than slightly freckled um, Irish girl. And um, when I was a kid, I had a gap in my front teeth. I had freckles on my skin. I have these blue green eyes. So they're not blue. They're not green. And they change color depending on what I wear or my mood. And and so every day I was getting this thing of what are you? You know, God, you look so weird. Why is your skin that color? You know, what are those? And some of it was joking. And then some of it was really real. Um, the gap teeth, of course, was a was a bad thing. Um you know, the movie E.T. came out around that time because I'm old. So the movie E.T. came out and it, I started being called E.T. And they're like, hey, E.T., here's here's a quarter. Why don't you you know call home or when are you going back to your spaceship or wherever you come from? Um, around the time that I hit puberty, then I suddenly grew taller than most of the boys. I had breasts. I had hips. And it suddenly it put me even further away from everybody else. So I was already being ridiculed for how I look uh, and looked. And so now I was being ridiculed because they didn't understand. Mm. We had this talk one time because this is Catholic schools. So there's no sex ed, certainly not back then in the 80s. Um, but there was one day where we sat down in fifth grade and we had to watch a little film. All the girls had to come in and watch this film while the boys got extra recess. And it was the film was about the period and what to expect. And every one of us was absolutely dumbfounded over why we had to stay in and watch this film while the boys got an extra recess. So the boys never had this exposure to the natural changes and uh, of, of puberty or what happens to a girl's body. Um, and so, yeah, I was made fun of on a daily basis. And it got to the point in fifth grade, I, you know, I'm now even taller. I was five foot four at that point, which I guess is tall for a 10 year old. And um, and we were studying World War Two. And they had taken my first name, Patricia, and made it Patty. And so I became Fat Pat once I hit puberty. Um, Fatty Patty. 
And then we were studying uh, the Japanese suicide bombers of World War II. And they took my last name, which is Kazi, and they said, hey, Kamikaze, you're so ugly. Why don't you go fly a plane and kill yourself? Oh, my God. And I was told on a daily basis that I needed to kill myself because I was so ugly that no one wanted to see me and that I should not you know, do this to the world. Now, all of this sounds ridiculous years later, but when you're a child and you hear this on a daily basis, that your skin's the wrong color, that you have you know, freckles or spots on your skin that make you look weird, that your body's some weird shape they don't understand and you just need to kill yourself because you're so different, that takes a toll. And so from those earliest years of nine years old, 10 years old, 11 years old, I hated my body. I hated myself. And I started to wonder, well, you know, if, if me being around is such a, a burden, you know, maybe the thing to do might be dot, dot, dot. Um, mm-hmm. Around that time also, because I was hitting puberty and developing um, in my body, suddenly I was getting attention from middle-aged men, basically the fathers of the guys that I went to school with. Um, And so I didn't understand this. I even had teachers make inappropriate comments to me because of my body, things that were kind of over my head at the time, but it, my mother understood what they meant. And so my mother who was so sexually repressed because of being Southern, because of being Baptist and Catholic, um, she saw me as this, lustful person who instills lust in men, basically a Mary Magdalene kind of wench. And so she tried even harder to repress my sexuality when I had no idea what was going on. You know, I was just me being me. And apparently um, that did things to men and really upset my mother. And so my love for life was being misconstrued as sexual energy by these creepy old men, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so it, that's the foundation. I mean, I know that's a very long answer uh, (laughs) to your question, but it, I, I have talked with so many people because of my own blog, arousewomenblog.com, that women tell me what they've experienced, how they've been um, attacked uh, because of their breasts, uh, or even their hips or their their butt, but usually it's because of breasts, that, that men will just walk up and grab and start squeezing their breasts. And be like, really? Have you no idea about personal space? Um, or if somebody, usually men, come up and they start stroking my hair, and I say, excuse you, what are you doing? Oh, I, oh your hair was so beautiful. I just like, well, that doesn't matter anything. You need back off if you, if I want you to touch my hair, I'll tell you, oh, well, it's just hair. No, it's attached to my body. And as long as my hair is attached to my body, it's still a part of my body. And I have a say in the consent about who touches it and when. Absolutely. So one of the that's been a driving force then in my activism is the notion of consent and the body and all of these um these these changes that need to be made in the relationships between men and women. And the reason why the hair thing is so um, so strong for me is that I remember we, I was about 11 years old and we were at the state fair 
we were standing in line, my family and I, we were standing in line for, you know, the bubble castle thing where you get to bounce, a bouncy castle um, thing. We were standing in line and the guy that ran that ride, I think it's called a ride, but it's the bouncy castle thing. Um, he was this very obese man, bald, with about one tooth in his head, reeked of alcohol. And as we stepped up, because we were the next ones to be allowed on, he started stroking my ponytail. And my mother just seethed. And I looked at her like, are you going to say or do something? But she didn't. It's like nobody speaking up for me, nobody standing up for me that this creepy guy is touching my body, but it's my hair. Um, the, the fact that my mother did not stand up to me, I don't know if it was because she somehow thought that just my old lusty self standing there with my double D breasts, you know, in my sweater, completely closed up to the necklines because she would never have let me wear anything that was, you know, deep, um, low plunge or whatever, um, that somehow I invited this behavior, um, I was just, it was one of those nails in the proverbial coffin. Uh, It's like, okay, okay, I can see you will never help me. You will never stand up for me because she automatically assumed I was guilty just because of the way I looked. Um, And now you stand up for so many others. You know, it's, it's amazing to me. I'm hearing your story and I'm hearing how much bullying that you have undergone from people and worse from people that you love or people that you know, adults that you should be able to trust and how you've done this whole full turnaround where you are now standing up for and being vocal about so many things. And that I think you need to really have kudos for. That's that's huge. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, you know, one of the things that I had to recognize um, and it helped me in writing the uh, writing that essay for your book um, made for sex is that there's absolutely nothing wrong with my body. There's nothing wrong with me feeling sexy or me feeling sexual or me feeling sensual, because I do think there's sometimes a difference between being sexual and being sensual. Um but all these years of being shamed for it, and there was there was nothing wrong. And literally, when I am standing there, not doing anything, and I'm still attacked, or I'm still, you know, the guy at the mall came up behind me, and I suddenly we were standing in line at the food court, and again, I was 12 years old. This is a grown man. I suddenly feel my head being pulled back and I turned around. This guy had taken my ponytail and wrapped it all the way around his arm and he was staring at it. And I said, excuse you, what are you doing? And he said, your hair was so beautiful. I just had to touch it. I said, no, you didn't. Wow. And it's like being made for sex is that my body and my sexuality and my sensuality is for me. And however that is perceived, while I'm standing there or walking down the street, you know, I I should not have to worry about being attacked, you know, because I don't want to feel shamed because I love sex or I love orgasm or, you know, I, I love talking about Tantra or, you know, I will absolutely tell everybody how awesome it is. So use your hands. <laughs> don't, you know, put down the vibrator, get inside there, get inside your body, feel how wonderful your vagina is and all the changes she goes goes through, through arousal and through, you know, climax and orgasm, which I differentiate between the two. So, yeah, it's, um, it's, 
we just still have a lot of work to do. And it's the work that you're doing. It's the work that I'm doing. It's the work that a lot of us are doing. And thankfully, more and more men are stepping up to the plate and realizing that change needs to happen. And um, some of these changes that need to happen within the male population are only going to come from the men speaking up because, you know, our words as females are going to fall on deaf ears. And so uh, to a lot of these guys. And it's important for men to speak up as well. Yes, we need everyone. We absolutely do. Otherwise, nothing's going to happen. I mean, we've been speaking up for ever. And it's it's very true. And I'm glad that people are starting to listen more. And I love what you shared in your story about coming to the realization for yourself that the vibrator was not having the positive effect on you. Could you explain kind of that that journey from using the toy and when you had this epiphany that perhaps you should try something different? Well, if by epiphany you mean absolute unmitigated frustration, then yes. I had, <laughs> okay, we'll go with that. I had a huge epiphany. Um, okay, well, what happened was at first I was traveling to, um, to I think it was I was going to New York, if I remember correctly. I'm old. My brain is tired. Um, but I, I just remember that I didn't want to risk taking my vibrator with me because I didn't want to be randomly searched by TSA and to have them like bring out my vibrator and wave it around in front of people. It's like, oh, my God, she's got a vibrator. Look at this crazy, lusty woman. Um, so it's like, OK, well, I'm not going to take my vibrator. And I was only gone for a couple of days and I, I was really tired. So I didn't do a whole lot. So when I tried to do a little something down there and nothing happened, I just chalked it up to, okay, I'm tired. So I then went um, to work for a major ballet competition. It takes place every four years. It, um, it's about three and a half weeks long. And uh, I was the assistant production stage manager. So I'm number two in charge of this thing that, that is just the most fabulous um, ballet competition in the world. And it's like, okay, three and a half weeks. Oh, my God. So I didn't take my vibrator then either. And as I tried to stimulate myself, I felt nothing. And I tried to come to orgasm and I couldn't, I couldn't come to climax. And this happened a few nights in a row of uh, three weeks into it. I started to feel something, but I didn't really have this kind of satisfactory climax that I wanted um, because I didn't have my vibrator, which at the time was a, was a Hitachi one. Now, I don't know if you've ever been so hooked onto vibrators and so desperate for orgasm. Like you've got the Hitachi wand in one hand and that so-called back massager that's 96 RPM in the other hand, mm -hmm. and you've got your vibrating dildo going as well. It, 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 you just, it's like you need more and more and more. Um, you, know, you have to get like a surge protector because you've got so many things to plug in now just to have one climax. So when I came back, and I used the Hitachi wand again, it was, it was like, yes, okay, this is what I want. This is what I'm familiar with. But what I realized was that when I was using my hands, I felt nothing. And that disturbed me. And so fast forward a couple of times masturbating that in trying to use just my hands just for, you know, old time's sake, I could not climax. In fact, my clit felt nothing. Like my fingertips could feel my clit, but my clit was not responding at all. 
And I would try and go a few weeks without it. And then I always resorted back to the Hitachi one. And the time came that I knew something was really wrong. And I just threw the Hitachi one in the dumpster um, because I had to heal myself. And it took six months off of the Hitachi one to start to feel again in my genital area. Wow. That's powerful. Well, it's, it's really frustrating because when you, when you see the media, when you see, you know, and and I'm on their, their mailing list, you know, a few of them anyway, they, the, these um, adult toy companies, um, they're always pushing the latest and greatest vibrator. And one of the things that, that struck me was that women are still being told you need something else because you are not enough in and of yourself. You need this toy. It vibrates. It oscillates. It does the windows and the dishes. Oh, my God, you need to get this. And it's only $150. And, right. and, it's, and it's that. And it's awesome. And you are, you're just not complete without this. And as a woman, as a feminist, I really started resenting the just the the media culture around sex toys, which is a huge multi-billion dollar industry. And what I wanted more than anything was to be able to go on a three-day trip somewhere (laughs) and be able to play with my luscious clit and vagina as much as I wanted to and feel something without thinking, oh my God, I, you know, I left my vibrator at home. It suddenly dawned on me that that I am not fully in control of my sexuality as long as I am dependent on a toy. That is so, so interesting. And I, I imagine, I know there are people listening who use vibrators exclusively to masturbate because of all the different reasons you just shared, you know, whether it's the media's representation of, of what a woman needs or if it's simply that you know, their threshold has changed because they became so hooked to one particular toy. So what tips would you provide for somebody who's just starting to explore with their hands for the first time? If you're starting to explore with your hands for the first time, first of all, you need to understand that climax exists for pleasure, not just so you can get tired and go to sleep, which is what a lot of people use masturbation for. Uh, people, especially men, but you know, a lot of women, you know, they, they jerk off, frig off because they just want to get tired. So you need to do this exploration of your body when you are not tired, when you are just wide eyed, bright eyed and bushy tailed, you just want to get in there and feel what it feels like. Because a lot of women don't know. A lot of women say, okay, well, I don't know if I have a G spot. Like, well, get your fingers in there and find it. (laughs) Yeah. But you've got to get in there. So you need to just create a sacred space, uh, some sacred time for you to just explore with absolutely no expectation. You know, some of the basic uh, foundational uh, tenets of Tantra is allow. That is, you just allow whatever feelings happen. You just allow them. You don't judge them. So allowing and non-judgment and with the non-judgment, you have to have no expectation, especially if you are 
you know, hooked on the vibrators and you're exploring your body for the first time. Now, I personally would recommend you take everything that requires a battery and put it in the dumpster. That would just be my advice to that because you (laughs) always keep reaching for that. And here's why. The brain, your central processing unit for your body is the most incredible computer known to man and womankind. And one of the things that the brain does better than anything else is adapt. So if all you ever use is a vibrator and then suddenly you're going to use your hands, your brain's going to say, oh, no, no, no. We've adapted. We know how this works. We need to spend the least amount of energy to get the most results. And we know the hands are not it. So no, 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 no. This isn't happening. So you have taught your body to adapt to the feelings and the experiences and the quickness the expeditiousness of vibrators. And when you start hands only, it's going to take you time and you are going to just have to be loving and gentle with yourself. Allow what happens or whatever doesn't happen. Don't judge what happens or doesn't happen and just be generous with yourself. The same way that we're, we tend to be very generous and understanding and forgiving with other people and unconditional in our, our, our goodwill or our love for other people. But then we turn around and we don't give ourselves that same love and, and forgiveness and unconditional acceptance and love. And let me tell you, if you have body issues, a vibrator is not going to help you. If you have body issues, and this is how I healed my hatred, loathing and absolute despising hatred of my breasts was through slow gentle, tantric, loving of myself, hands-on, hands-on my breast all the way around, hands in my vagina, all in as far as I can get my two knuckles in there, and just to love and explore myself the way I never knew existed with vibrators. Mm. That's beautiful. I love that. You know, I'm I'm a fan of toys, but I also really believe that we need to know our own bodies. And like you said, if it's something that we're using every time or or even really intense, I have this one vibrator that is so intense that I will only seldom use it, partly because there's no way that I or a partner can ever recreate that. I'm here to tell you that what you can experience is limitless and in so many different ways. But if you keep going with the same toy, the same way, um, at the same time, you know, you get in your, your groove of, you know, the way you normally do this. You're just going to have the same experiences. And over time, you can do damage to the nerves in the in the clitoris, the um, perineum and the anal area. So, um, you know, just get off them. Just, that's my bestest advice. Get off them. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. This is such a unique story and you have such passion. And I, I so appreciate that. Tell everybody where they can learn more about your work. Well, my main website is trishcauzy.com. That's T-R-I-S-H-C-A-U-S-E-Y.com. And that has links for my activist blog, arousewomenblog.com, and also my Tantra, if you want to sign up for my Tantra course, and my writings and my music and all that jazz. So yeah, trishcauzy.com. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining me, Trish. 
Next, we have our fantastic sex and relationships expert, Dr. Megan Fleming on the line. Thank you so much for joining me, Megan. How are you doing today? I'm doing fabulous. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome. I always love your, your advice and it's fun when you get to actually join me in kind of real time. And we received a really thoughtful question from somebody who I'd love to explore with you. It's from a, a listener named Hope who wrote this. This is a tough one. I have been married 16 years. I was very pleasing and accommodating and a shell of who I have become today back then. I married an atheist, but have always been spiritual. I married for love without really knowing the impact this would have. We had our first child and my husband was jealous. I wasn't able to meet all his needs as my energy, body, time, and efforts were being poured into our baby. Not sure when it happened, but he developed an unfelt relationship with alcohol and has been a closet tobacco chewer. He has struggled with these issues since we married, and even though the volume of alcohol or chewing may not be perceived as quote-unquote too much, he admits it's his relationship with the alcohol and tobacco. He drinks after kids go to sleep alone on the couch. I was pulled into an emotional affair about 10 years into our marriage, which he discovered after only a few months, and it ended, and we got counseling. We had attempted marriage counseling when my first son was six months old, only to be told I didn't need to be there, just him. He reached a point of nearly committing suicide four years later and sought individual counseling again. Every attempt, he outsmarted the counselors and chose to only share what he wanted, so never really got help. Until he came to my counselor, who was wicked smart, and I called him out on his BS, and she was able to help us both immensely. We have had counseling for six years. He continues to struggle with addiction and depression, and all the while, I have grown into a more authentic, aware, and spiritual person. I don't think he loves himself enough to love others and wonder if his addiction and lack of faith make it nearly impossible for an intimate, deep connection. I can't even think about having sex and I'm sad. We are close to uncoupling and I guess I just hope for him to learn self-love so he can find a different happiness than we have. There is just no joy left. There's so much to sort of unpack and look at here, but I know that Hope said she was very open and comfortable with us talking about sort of the the themes because so many people might relate to these issues. And one of the questions that resonated with her is, is there any hope or way to restore deep, intimate connection once it's been lost? What do you think about that? You know, I think absolutely. I mean, there's a lot here, as you said, to sort of unpack. But um, first of all, from, you know, from sort of a diagnostic and, and uh, prognostic perspective, if you've had that level of intimacy and connection, it's so much easier to get something back than sometimes I work with couples who've never had it. And how do you, when you've never had it, get to a point where it can emerge? So. Um, you know, I, I think that that's a key point. You know, once you've had something, you've lost it, it it's a lot more, um, it, it's, again, given the challenges in 16 years of marriage, I know that there's a lot of history and weight here, but uh, I do think prognostically, it absolutely is possible. And, you know, some of the questions I have is, you know, when she says I'm a shell of myself and lost herself, um, you know, it, it's you know, sort of how did that happen? And did that happen before the birth of a child? And what, you know, from moment of falling in love to having a child, you know, what was their connection or intimacy like? Because for any couple, you know, I think 
things that people can really relate to here. You know, once you introduce a child, the third, um, from a time, from an energy, you know, it's, it's, it's stressful. Um, and although it's amazing and enjoyable and, and, you know, everybody's welcoming sort of that life-changing experience. It's also to recognize that a couple has to really actively work on maintaining their own personal bond and connection, independent and separate from sort of, um, running what I call the LLC, you know, the, the business arrangement of the home and, and taking care of your kids. Um, and so, you know, it's also interesting. It sort of goes from, you know, feeling like he was, you know, drinking in a way that felt not perceived as too much. And after the kids went to sleep. So that, that gives me the idea that he might be in more control. So how and why is it that he was going to the couch? You know, was she sort of expressing a wish and a longing for an intimate connection? Or was she just so exhausted? You know, at the time, it may have worked for her to have him sort of you know, pass out and, and, uh, be on the couch. I mean, th- that's one of the things I want to highlight for couples is like when a problem's arising in your marriage, how is it getting talked about? You know, are you able to say, you know, I really miss you. I miss our connection. Uh, I miss our time. Um, it's, it's unclear to me whether that is a piece of what was happening for them. Really, really excellent points. I love what you said about, you know, if the connection was there, it's much easier to, to re re rekindle it it. exactly to rekindle that um and it's also interesting like you said it takes a a willingness on on both parts to bring that back or to create it for the first time so when you get to a point where there's all these accumulative things over a long period of time what what is that kind of first step if you do want to move forward together Well, I think you're bringing up a really important point, which is it's the, you know, I call it death by a thousand paper cuts, you know, for, for a lot of people, it's sort of that, you know, day in, day out, it's, it's the misconnection, it's feeling dropped, it's the frustration. And, you know, you may make sense of it because you're exhausted and, but over time you feel unseen, unwanted, unimportant. And I think first and foremost is raising the flag and saying, wait a minute, part of it is how do we get here? But most importantly, this isn't my vision, my dream for our marriage, for our life, for our future. And can we get on the same page? And this is a huge one from my perspective, because so often um, it's levels of frustration and resentment builds and sort of negative uh, cycles of reactivity and, you know, anger or shutting the other partner out that it's like they've lost a compass and they've lost any sense. It's like hopelessness and helplessness. They sort of get to a place where they feel like it's not even possible. They can't even imagine it. And so from a therapeutic perspective, I'm like, that's where we got to start. Because if you can't imagine and picture it, getting back to where you want it to be and how we're going to co-create this together like, if you can't imagine it, then I'm not sure how we're going to get there. That, that really is the first step. So it's imagining. Is that imagining consciously together where you sit down and say, here, what, what do we dream up? What would we love to see happen? Yeah, I mean, it's what we call like a relationship vision. Like, okay, what we're in right now is what I call the lose-lose, right? <laughs> Neither one of us is really getting our needs met. And these are the respective ways that we both are coping but that's not really working. And we don't really see that or can't imagine doing that forever for the long term. So how do we put our heads together and think about, can we both create the vision that win-win, right? What does it look and feel like that, oh my God, 
this is what feels really good where I feel like not only are we connecting and have, um, you know, sort of the emotional and the physical intimacy, but also where not only you're supporting me to grow individually, but we're growing as a couple. Mm, yes. I love that. It sounds like a really powerful exercise for any couple, but especially if you're in, in crisis, how does one restore intimacy when, because it's not just these two, they also have this sort of other piece of addiction and, and depression, it sounds like. So is that something that needs to be addressed kind of first, or is that just all one big, it's all one big thing? Well, I honestly think, um, depending on who you ask, uh, as a, from a clinician and experience, you might get different answers to that. Um, but I guess from my own personal perspective, it's kind of like when somebody has an affair, you know, do you disclose it or not? You know, you'll get a different perspective depending on the therapist you're working with. Um, but here to me, they're both co-occurring, you know, when somebody's got an addiction, you know, say we're talking about alcoholism, you know, the first question is what's making you thirsty? You know, when people are going to a substance or something out, you know, they're basically going to, it could be internet porn, it could be anything, but they're basically saying to themselves, I can't get my need met with you and I'm going to go to this substance or thing so that I can feel or not feel because it might be about numbing because this feels too hurtful, painful, or it might be so I can feel something that I'm not feeling with you. So I think a big part of what has to get looked at is what is um, fueling sort of the you know, we're using the word addiction, but it's sort of a compulsive behavior um, where you're taking energy outside of the relationship because you're feeling somehow those needs can't get met there. So the first part is, what is that? And then, you know, I think that it depends where we are and what we're calling addiction, um, you know, because when someone, the, the nature of addiction is a, it's a relapsing disease. So, uh, you know, if someone's actively using and has zero control and it um, is clearly Im impacting their, you know, ability to get to their work or, um, you know, their own functioning or their relationship, I guess to me, it's a level of degree. You know, if somebody is actively under the influence of using, that is first and foremost. But if somebody is um, really in a program and working on recovery, I think you can simultaneously also work on the relationship. Sure. Yeah, that makes really good sense. And I imagine it takes a lot of willingness or at least some willingness on the person's part who is struggling with the coping mechanism or addiction. Yeah. For sure. I mean, I think that, you know, I would say it's an inside job, right? That, um, or the expression you can lead a horse or a dog to water, but you can't make them drink. You know, it's the nature is somebody has to have that own sense of, distress and awareness that of course on some level you feel like the substance is working for you or you wouldn't be using it but it's not really working with you that there's way too many costs uh personally relationally and you know the costs of it need to be highlighted in such a way that someone actually sees the the value for themselves and the relationship to get on the other side okay and you made me think of ultimatums. We hear that a lot. You know, if you don't give up this or you don't do that, then I'm not here with you. Are ultimatums helpful sometimes, not, never, always? Mm, you know, I don't think there's any gold standard here, but I would generally say most people don't like to be told what to do. Yeah. And so uh, sort of psychically, there's often, it feels like... Um, 
you know, that's certainly not unconditional love. And I'll, and as I say that, I realize, listen, there are behaviors and um, ways that are unacceptable, um, completely unacceptable. So I'm never giving permission for people's, uh, you know, irresponsible and uh, potentially uh, punitive or damaging behavior um, or abusive behavior. But I think that emotionally to the person who's struggling, it feels like, they don't have that secure base. And I'm not saying that that equals you should. um, And I think this is important because she mentioned, you know, he had, uh, I believe a suicide attempt, you know, you can't be hostage to your partner. You know, they equally have to do their own work. You can't be hostage to, if I leave, then in any way I'm responsible for the choices they're going to make next or for their life or well being. You can't be held hostage. And at the same time, to the extent that you can, how do you create a, a support system, a community, AA, any of the 12-step programs, so that that person um, doesn't feel alone? Mm, yes, so important. And you mentioned support. I know she really wants to support his healing. She mentioned that. She said she wants him to find happiness and to cultivate self-love, you know, even if they don't stay together, which it seems that that's kind of her um, perspective right now that they're going to be parting ways. How, how does somebody help support somebody's personal healing, you know, if or when they decide to, to, in this case, perhaps even divorce? I mean, that's very complex, (laughs) um, to put it lightly. But I think it starts with that conversation, which is, I really feel like I've given a hundred percent of my 50%. You know, I really, um, feel like I've left no stone unturned and I'm not going to walk away with any sense of regret. If only I would have, could have, should have. I think that's an important piece and maybe we can touch upon, you know, to me, the value of not only couples therapy, which they went to, but potentially even doing, um, weekend intensives, because I think that you, a need to feel like you've done the work, and that you aren't going to second guess yourself, but that ultimately it's to say, you know, I'm at a point where I need to sort of honor myself and my own healing. What, if anything, can I do to support you? And the piece that's not being said is incredibly important here is we're going to be co-parents the rest of our lives. Um, so usually I consider kids in a sense, the leverage, right? They're both, maybe they couldn't come to the same page in terms of a relationship vision, but I almost ubiquitously find that people, when it comes to their kids, they want the best for them and they want them to, you know, be happy, healthy. And so really sort of leveraging, okay, so how can I help you get what you need so that we both can give our kids what they need? What's that going to look like? Mm, yeah, I love that. I love that. You mentioned the weekend intensives. So is that like a weekend full of really intense therapy? Well, um, the one I first became acquainted with is uh, Getting the Love You Want, which um, is a mago, and that comes from the work of Harville Hendricks. And it's a book as well as um, a weekend workshop. And over the years, I've, so, I mean, I'll give you the names and maybe we can put up on your blog, um, of a number of, you know, really well-known, they all have bestseller books, um, therapists and almost all of them have sort of like Imago or Sue Johnson's emotionally focused therapy for couples. Like it's like their own sort of, uh, people who train in their method and the value of a weekend is it's with other couples who are in the same boat and 
you know, I think it's really important because people are like, I don't want to feel exposed, but that, um, it basically it's a lot of information and then you break out just the two of you for like exercises. So it's not like you're having to disclose anything personal in a group setting, but it's just, you know, oftentimes when things get uncomfortable, we run, it's like yoga, lean into discomfort, right? So mm-hmm. a weekend is like a lot of leaning in and it's a lot of insights and, you know, like light bulb moments that help you understand your why and how you got here. And I think for most couples, and I've worked with many who are like imminently on the verge of divorce, it, it, it's like, it helps them take stock and really think of, oh, wait, you know, what, wait, oh my gosh, I remember what we had and how did we get here? And again, I think it shortcuts like six months of therapy. So, um, again, there's Harville Hendricks, there's Sue Johnson, Stan Tatkin, Wired for Love, Terry Real, uh, Heidi Schleifer, Ellen Bader, John Gottman. I mean, I could go on and on, but you know, if people start to do some research, I guess I'm just trying to introduce the idea that uh, I think people are scared of group in some ways because I recommend it a lot and most people are like, no, not for me. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> you know what? There's an immense value. I've done it myself and my husband is part of my training. And you know, it's, it's, it's just like, we only know what we know. And there's nothing like being in an environment with other people in your situation on some level. And it, it's just, it, it connects a lot of dots is all I got to say. And I think there's a lot of value. And so it's something should, people should potentially try on and see if it might be a good fit for them. Sure. I imagine it feels really vulnerable for a lot of people because you're not only dealing with vulnerable issues, but in front of other people, which it seems to me that that would just be more potential for for growth because it's, it's hard, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you say vulnerability and I think that's true, but not as much as people think. Cause like I said, you don't have to share, uh, mostly like you're not sharing in front of a group. If you're not comfortable, you break down into just you and your partner. Um, but it's also, it, it undoes the aloneness. Mm. Like you're there with a bunch of other people who have found themselves in that same boat. I love that. Yeah. That's gotta be really reassuring for sure. Any uh, any last bits of advice for anybody who's hearing all this and and relating? Well, I think that um, you know, going back to her point in the beginning, like people can relate. Listen, sixteen years into marriage, right there, you know, I'm married sixteen years. It, you know, the nature of relationship is rupture and repair, right? So, it, you know, the part of her that feels like she became a shadow of herself or shell of herself, it's like those are all warning signs and flags. And my, my general sense is most people get into a mode of reactivity and, um, essentially bringing out the worst in one another, what I consider the lose lose. And it's like, Whoa, how do we identify these patterns, these behaviors, what just triggered them, what's going on? And, you know, actively and proactively working on the repair and the healing. Um, it's not that you're never going to fight with your partner, but you know, if you're doing the work, you don't do it as often. It's less intense. Uh, you get back into connection more quickly. It, it's really helping people realize that relationship is work. And I always say sex, not a dirty word. And, you know, work's not a dirty word. You know, like people want things to come effortless and easy and spontaneous. Yet the things you put the effort into are the things that you honestly value the most and you can kind of count on. So I would just sort of normalize that. Again, there's a lot of additional things here about an emotional affair and, and potential addiction and, or addiction. Um, but I think it's just to recognize, you know, it's work to be in a relationship, but you know, 16 years in, I can tell you it, it is 
amazing. And I'm like, you know, the rewards of it, um, like it, it, it's just like, we're totally much better, stronger than we ever were before individually and together as a couple. And I'm just encouraging people like, you know, our culture, uh, culture is about consumption and on to the next one. <laughs> and then there's wherever you go, there you are. So there's the value of, you know, creating that bond, that intimacy and get it on the other side. I love that. All of that, especially what you said about just knowing that rupture and repair is the nature of relationship that just felt so reassuring to me just to, just to feel that, you know, when we do have struggles, that it's part of the deal and, and that there's good news that it's not just that you get through it, but that if you work at it, you actually get through it as stronger people, better. And you do it differently. Oh yeah. I guess you have to, right? (laughs) (laughs) Or you don't, and you're going to end up getting divorced. But but then I think you're going to co-create that you know, we can call it the unconscious collusion or the co-creation, but like every relationship is co-created, you know, and it's easy to finger point and say, if only my partner X, Y, or Z, but again, the role of, you know, therapy is a mirror. And she talked about this, apparently, um, you know, the value came when they saw her therapist. And I think that there's something really powerful about couples therapy, because guess what? Your partner's holding your mirror. You're not just coming to the pain point of what, you know, what you're disclosing to your therapist. Like you've got, you got it all right there alive in front of you. Um, and I think you both need to see what the other person is reflecting. Mm, Powerful. I love that. Thank you so much. I feel like so many people will see bits of themselves in this and, and find hope. So thank you. Hope you are so brave and awesome to share your story with us all. I am wishing you the best and cheering for you all the way. To learn more about or connect with Dr. Megan, visit greatlifegreatsex.com and find her on social media at Megan Fleming PhD. To get a spectacular deal on her audio and workbook program, Rekindle Desire, visit greatlifegreatsex.com forward slash girlboner. To stock up on your favorite sex products, whether you maybe you want to switch your vibrator for a dildo or get some new lube, head over to the Pleasure Chest in New York City, Los Angeles, or Chicago, or shop online at the Pleasure chest.com in honor of their 45 year anniversary this month of september you'll get five dollars back for every 45 dollars you spend so awesome and free shipping on orders 75 dollars or more if you're enjoying girl boner radio i hope you'll subscribe on itunes leave a rating and review and hop over to my website augustmclaughlin.com for show extras and a whole lot more. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.